welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 52, recorded on May 6th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe, and congratulations on the one-year mark. And we kick it off this week with a goodbye to 32-bit. Yes, the march of progress continues. And this week, we've learned that Ubuntu Mate and Ubuntu Budgie are both dropping 32-bit ISOs going forwards with the 1810 cycle. So 1804 is going to be the last 32-bit ISOs that you're going to have for those two flavors of Ubuntu. I would imagine that other flavors will follow suit this week, but right now, I think they're the only ones that are confirmed. So do we really care about this? Do we have any 32-bit only machines at this point that are even worth using? I don't think I could say that I personally care, but I was surprised to see that Ubuntu Mate was one of the first leading the charge here because when I think of Mate, I think of it as a distribution for systems that maybe are a little older that you want to get some, some new life into. But when you look at the project's rationale, it's pretty hard to argue with this. One thing to remember, starting with 1804, it's still early days, but they are getting hardware telemetry back now, and that's starting to give the project some early indications, including the fact that a lot of people that are installing the 32-bit version of Ubuntu are doing so on 64-bit hardware. So they look at that, and they also look at the fact that really nothing 32-bit is shipped for 10 years, and that those resources could be spent maybe supporting the ARM version even better. And when you consider that only 10% of Ubuntu Mate users are even using the 32-bit version, I really can't argue with their logic or their rationale. But I imagine it will definitely impact some folks in our audience, because really... 32-bit hardware is still perfectly good as long as it boots and powers on and you just want to browse the web. But the world is moving on. What about you, Joe? Don't you have a 32-bit machine kicking around? I do. It's not something that I use regularly. I only really test lightweight distros on it occasionally and older distros. It's a very old machine. I think it was one of the last laptops made that wasn't a netbook that was 32-bit only. And I, I just can't really do much with it. Even if you get, say, even Lubuntu running on it, yes, you can get that running, you can get a browser up, but most websites are so heavy these days that it's just painful to use anything, especially anything multimedia or anything like that. I mean, maybe if you're just reading PDFs or just reading RSS feeds or something, it makes sense. But if you really, really want to set something like that up, you can do it with an Ubuntu minimal installation and all the packages are still there to get what is effectively Ubuntu Budgie or Ubuntu Mate. It's really just the ISOs that they are not going to be making available now. So I don't think it's as big an issue as some people would like to say, but I mean, we saw this last year, didn't we? This ending of 32-bit support with Arch and various other distros. And I think 2018 is the year that 32-bit will just die altogether, really, apart from the odd specialist distro, maybe. But one thing you mentioned there about Ubuntu Mate being associated with old hardware, that's something that Martin Wimpress is very keen to not have happen, that association, because as far as he's concerned, it is just a, a modern distro. And okay, it might have a traditional paradigm, but that doesn't mean that it is aimed at low-end hardware. I think something like Lubuntu with LXD or LXQt, that is aimed at low-end hardware, but uh, don't say that about Mate, you might upset him. <laughs> or your favorite, Ubuntu. Actually, that's one of my favorite things about Ubuntu Mate, is that you can take advantage of 
absolutely modern hardware and have that traditional paradigm workflow for whichever one that you potentially like because you can switch between a bunch of different layouts. It's one of the tools they have built into the distro. So it really accommodates that. But I think it still has Mate itself might have that um, that uh, association, perhaps not Ubuntu Mate, but Mate itself. But you look at this, it's it's really about the economics for the project. There is less to test. There is less security surface that they have to worry about. There is a simplification in the code that they're shipping, and there is a focus for the project. Not to mention, it makes it easier from a QA standpoint because they can focus on 64-bit hardware and stop trying to keep some 32-bit old machine alive that the project may not even have available to them. 32-bit hardware is getting scarcer and scarcer. So there is all of these economic factors that make the project more efficient, it helps them get their job done better, and it gives them a simplification, which you know they could always use. It's just, it's too hard of an opportunity to pass up. And like you said earlier, I think we're going to see this spread. Yeah, I wonder if we're going to be sitting here next week talking about all the other flavors, maybe. Uh, I don't know. But one flavor that you wouldn't expect it to be would be Lubuntu. And uh, they made the news this week on one of Jupiter Broadcasting shows, didn't they? On Ask Noah, when uh, Simon Quigley came on and announced that finally they're moving to LXQ for the main version in 1810. This is a great milestone to see because the project's been working on this for like three years. We're going to finally see it happen in Lubuntu 18.10. It'll be the first release to ship with LXQ as default. Simon goes into details on Ask Noah, but the basics are is that the primary goal here is to offer users a lightweight computing environment that will run on machines that have a wide range of hardware, some older hardware as well as more modern hardware, but use a mature LXQ environment. Now, you probably guessed that Qt in there is Qt which is a modern toolkit that the Plasma desktop is built off of. So you get a lot of the benefits of Plasma's desktop, the Qt 5 toolkit, on a lightweight, super fast, simple desktop environment. I don't know if it's there for me personally, but I am really watching this with a lot of anticipation. I could see after the 1804 release cycle, so my next distro could easily see be powered by LXQt. Well, I had a quick look at Lubuntu Next, the 18.04 version today, and I was quite impressed with it. It's been a while since I checked in with LXQt, and it's come a long way. It, there are a few things that are slightly not right for me and things that could be worked on, and they've got, well, two years before the next LTS. So I can kind of see where you're coming from with this because it's just so lightweight and simple. And because it is based on Qt 5, it means that it is modern and you're going to have all of the benefits with high DPI support and all the rest of it that Qt brings. And they could not stay on LXTE for another LTS after this one because LXTE is just totally dead at this point, isn't it? The only people who are interested in maintaining it are the Raspberry Pi Foundation. And, you know, is that really relevant? I suppose it is to the however many million Raspberry Pis they've sold, but to the rest of us... In the Linux community, I think we just have to accept that LXD is dead. I, I have a real soft spot for it because it is so lightweight. I've, I've loved it on low-end hardware, but I think you just have to accept the future. Much like with the 32-bit thing going away, you just have to accept LXD going away. And it seems to be an admirable replacement to me. I agree, and I wouldn't be surprised if the Raspberry Pi Foundation doesn't just embrace the cute version down the road. When this transition is complete, in the 1810 timeframe we're going to see the discontinuation of Lubuntu Next. It'll just become main Lubuntu. 
And the current LXDE version, the 1804, will become known as Lubuntu Classic. I do wonder how long that's going to last, though. I wouldn't have thought until the next LTS. Yeah, I'm not going to bet against you on that one. Well, speaking of things that might not be sticking around for a while, it seems the Corora project has run into some troubles. Yeah, now this is a real shame because Corora is a great distro as far as I'm concerned, or it was, maybe we have to talk about it in the past tense at this point, because it takes Fedora and just removes all the fiddling and it's got a really great default package set and just all of the defaults generally are really easy. And I think it is the ideal introduction to Fedora for new users. So now that it's probably going to go away, uh, that kind of sucks. Yeah, this week the project took to their blog and said for the foreseeable future, they will have no updates. They will not be tracking Fedora 28. Now the repositories will stay online, but there's not going to be any new packages or updates. They need to take a breather. They say they have to just take a break and they will keep the servers online with the intention to come back eventually. Yeah, and there's a comment on Reddit from one of the Corora developers, which basically says that the lead dev just disappeared. Yeah, I saw that thread too. And I read through it and was shaking my head almost the entire time, not because I was disappointed, but because I feel like I've seen this before. Anyone who's done some distro hopping in their day has run into a distro that they just love, and then the project comes to an end. And the story often starts with a lead of the project that is really the the vision person, the primary driver of the project, and it just becomes too much because of internet trolls or responsibilities or insert various life reasons, and they go AFK for an extended period of time. And then you have the lieutenants of the project who do an admiral job just keeping things running for as long as they can, maintaining packages. As long as all the services stay online and the domains are paid for, they can kind of keep things moving. And it just sort of slowly devolves into a demoralized story where the rest of the team becomes burned out. They feel like they can't affect change. And, of course, the entire time they're trying to keep everything public-facing looking all great and smiley faces. But the even deeper troubling thing here is... Corora is just one of many stories this week. In fact, another one is Void Linux. Void Linux is going through almost the same exact issue. Their project leader has gone MIA. The remaining core team doesn't have access to some of the essential infrastructure tools like their GitHub page and the domain names for the most popular domain. It's just an awful situation. And Void Linux and Corora Linux have very similar stories here. It's enough to put you off using a small distro altogether, isn't it? just in case something like this happens. Yeah, I'd really hope not, Joe. But I've gotten several notes from listeners this week who have said just that, that they feel like they've been burned by going with a small distro. And if you think about what that means, that's very dangerous because Linux thrives in an environment where any idea is technically capable of succeeding. We wouldn't have Ubuntu Mate. We wouldn't have elementary OS. We wouldn't have a bunch of other distributions that started with one or two people, in some cases just one person, if people didn't take a chance on a small distribution. At the same time, as Linux becomes more of the operating system for your new developers, the web developers, or your sysadmins and your your DevOps category labels that people like to toss around, as Linux becomes that OS, the tolerance for this level of failure, where the OS you're using just becomes unsupported, is going to be low. And I think it will force a consolidation to larger distributions, which is sort of creating big Linux. Maybe we've always been there. But I've always, I've always had the, the feeling that a new idea 
something like a Solus could come along and be disruptive and just on its technical merits could get a, a decent user following. But Solus is a great example. Elementary OS is another where, yes, there is some governance in place, but both of those projects are very much driven by one person. And if that one person's circumstances change, then who knows what can happen with it, especially if those circumstances change quickly. And and as we know, that can happen in life. And so you, you do worry about them. And you know that does put me off moving over to one of those types of distributions, even though Solus is technically absolutely brilliant. I mean, EO package, as a package manager, is just so fast and so straightforward and powerful at the same time. And not to mention all of the GUI tools that Ike's built on that as well. But I'm just reluctant to invest in it until it gets to a certain size. And it can't get to a certain size if people don't invest in it. And so you get this vicious circle happening. And I think that you might be right that it's very difficult for smaller distros to break through and become the next major one. So I actually want to nitpick a bit on what you just said. I would not compare Solus and Elementary OS anymore in light of what we're seeing with Void and Corora. So in my eyes, a distribution like Elementary OS has several clear paths to monetization. Maybe they're not making as much money as they'd like with the App Center, and maybe a lot of folks aren't adding a dollar amount when they hit that download, but there are clear built-in paths to revenue to make a distribution sustainable, and as a result, they've slowly added staff. Like, there's only a couple of people that are technically full-time, maybe even one, but they have a structure in place that, that... gives a a path to revenue as their user base increases. Then you look at distributions like Corora and Void Linux and perhaps Solus. I'm not sure what the situation is there. Uh, They have a Patreon, I suppose, where there's not a clear path to revenue sustainability. And I think that's what actually makes the difference. I'm going to be honest. You look at podcasts. Podcasts that have advertisers stick around for decades. Podcasts that don't have advertisers stick around for maybe 60 episodes. It's the same thing. When you put all of yourself into making something, having a path to revenue sustainability makes a difference between you disappearing and sticking around. And I know as GNU slash Linux users, we hate to admit that money, good old capitalism plays a role here, but it, I think, does. So I think the lesson from Void and Corora is that if a distribution doesn't have a clear path to long-term sustainability when it comes to revenue, it's risky to bet on that distribution. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't use the distribution. I think it's great. I love Arch Linux as an example. But I think it's something you at least have to factor into your decision when it's part of your workflow or your development setup or perhaps a production environment. You have to consider these factors. Well, that is true. But one of the greatest things about Linux is that you can migrate over to another distro relatively easily. In some cases, it can just be copy your home directory over, job done, switching from Ubuntu to Fedora, say. Sure. It can be so easy to migrate. And if you're on a smaller distro and then things go wrong with it, then you've always got that backup of the the many other big distros that are rock solid. That's not always the case. So take Void Linux, for example. One of the things that is standout about Void is that it doesn't use systemd. There are less and less choices. I mean, it's coming down to Dev1, FreeBSD, Gentoo, and several others that don't use systemd, and that's it. So there were unique aspects, amongst others, not just 
the failure to use system D or the neglect to use system D or the decision, but there were other factors about void. But I think that's something to consider. Like there are certain distributions that offer something no other di distribution does, much like I feel Solus does as well and elementary OS, that there really is no one-to-one -one transition in the Linux community. It's about as disruptive as moving from, say, Mac OS to Linux. I don't know, though. I, I can see your point that it is maybe not quite as easy as I'm saying, but if you can get the same desktop environment on a different system, then it can be broadly similar. Yes, some of your workflow might change, but you can at least get it looking similar and laid out and you know get all your files in the same places, Maybe less so with something like Void, which is quite different. But yeah. um, certainly if you're looking at something that's based on Ubuntu, I mean, to go from elementary, well, I suppose, again, that's a bad example because of Pantheon. But yeah, maybe I'm wrong and maybe you're right. I don't know, Joe. As as you started describing, I thought, really, most of these end users are probably just firing up a web browser once the desktop session starts. So maybe <laughs> it matters less and less. It's really on the server where it matters more now. Yeah, well, a web browser and a terminal, I think. Fair enough. To be fair. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Go there to learn more about Linux Academy, support this show, and sign up for a free seven-day trial to a platform that is built by Linux enthusiasts and packed full of information to teach you more about everything built around Linux and the core essentials. Linux Academy is a full-featured training library with everything you need to learn new skills and advance your career. With self-paced, in-depth video courses on every Linux cloud and DevOps topic, my favorite feature is the hands-on scenario-based labs. Well, maybe my second favorite feature then would be the instructor mentoring full-time human beings. They're ready to help and happy to do so. And when they're not helping you, they're constantly adding and revising content on Linux Academy. Linux Academy just released 21 new courses and a couple of cool new features for learning AWS, including some quests and challenges, 150 hands-on learning activities, and a new episode of Scale Your Code, which I used to talk about quite a while ago, which is a one-on-one -on -one interview that they do with people in the industry where you can pick up the things they've learned, how to scale, how to build a team, how to create a culture in a large IT environment. Scale Your Code has all of that, and it's part of Linux Academy. It's just one of the many things that makes your subscription valuable, plus the practice exams and quizzes, which will help you get ready for the big certification exams. linuxacademy.com slash Unplugged. Go there, free seven-day trial, and support the show. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Okay, let's talk about Fedora 28 that was released this week. And there's a lot to cover here. Workstation, server, atomic host, even atomic workstation. So I think it makes sense to start with a desktop version that they call workstation. And it's a pretty solid release, isn't it? Solid, the jury is still out. I, I'm pretty impressed so far. Um, nothing like I've ever experienced would be the way I would put it. I, I, this is Fedora, but not like you know it. In a weird way, it's just like you know it. If you've been using Fedora release after release, this is a pretty incremental update. If you've been using a different distribution and you haven't tried Fedora out for three or four releases, your mind is going to be blown. Um, for the first time, they're making it easy for users to just turn on third-party software repositories like RPM Fusion, like the proprietary NVIDIA driver, like Chrome. And you launch software, and it has a blue drop-down box that comes up and says, would you like to turn on third-party repositories? You hit yes, and or enable, and now you have all of the software. 
all of the software that in every review for the last, well, since Fedora first shipped a release, I complained was a pain in the arse for people to install, is now just a click away. One click, and now you can search for Chrome in the GNOME software, and you can install not Chromium, you can install Chrome on Fedora after you've just installed it from the ISO. And if you decide maybe you've made a bad moral decision, you go into the software sources preferences or whatever they call it, and it's a big red remove button. You click that and all of that proprietary garbage is gone. Yeah, Fedora, but not as we know it. I think that's the only way to describe it because Fedora has been known as being a freedom-loving distribution. It's not quite FSF standards, but it is very much known for being the free software distribution. So for them to make it so easy... Personally, I think it's a great decision because it's opt-in and you can easily say, no thanks, I'll stick with free software only, but it just makes it so much more accessible. It's one of the things that has put me off before. Yes, okay, I do know how to get RPM Fusion working and all the rest of it, but to make it so easy, it's suddenly a much more appealing prospect to run this on the desktop. you got to look at this from the software developer's perspective where they they have to test in Chrome as part of their job. They have to use machine learning as part of their job. That's why they were provided a laptop with an NVIDIA card in it to begin with. Fedora is just simply trying to address that need while also not diminishing the experience for users who don't want any of that crap installed. And they've really walked the line here in a way that after all of the years of of really begging for this from the project, I never imagined it would be done so well. They've implemented it in a way that doesn't offend people that just want free software, but yet they've made the experience simple and clear enough for those who've just switched to Fedora and want to get to work. I'm really impressed. And that polish extends to all aspects of Fedora 28's release. It is a cohesive experience. Let's focus on the server and cloud spins for a moment because this is becoming a more and more compelling aspect of Fedora. I have had a Fedora 24 cloud install up on DigitalOcean since Fedora 24 came out. And I loaded NextCloud inside a Docker container. Now, one of the things I've been doing, like a test lab, is upgrading that sucker every single Fedora release since 24. I upgraded it this weekend to 28. I have yet to have anything break. I always reboot the whole system. I make sure NextCloud's working. Granted, it's a test lab machine, but that is a lot of upgrades I have done now. And I think that's that's maybe the bigger story here. So there is a small support window for Fedora releases. And I think that's kind of the cloud that hangs over Fedora when you go to use it in production. And to address that, the project is taking on a lot of different tracks that sort of make that release window irrelevant. So they have modularity, which uh, maybe we can talk about more in a moment. And then they have made a ton of improvements to DNF. And then they have these cloud and server spins or additions, if you will. The Cloud Edition is a minimal install that's great on a VPS. I put it on a DigitalOcean droplet, and I loaded Cockpit onto that sucker, and I've been managing now for years, actual years now, upgrade after upgrade, running NextCloud. So this weekend, uh, after having just another terrific Fedora experience, I made the decision to consolidate three of my systems down to one Fedora 28 system, managed all with Cockpit, using containers and virtualization. And it's a really top-notch experience. First of all, one of the things that I appreciate as a former sysadmin is 
the documentation around Fedora has really built up over the years. And it's not hurt by the fact that a lot of those commands you can use on CentOS and you can use on Red Hat Enterprise Linux. So there's just so much documentation these days. Like peak Ubuntu documentation, I feel like that's where Fedora is reaching now. But the confidence they've given me now in release after release upgrades working has really changed my thinking about the support window. And then you combine modularity, which you got more information recently when you had a chat with Matthew Miller. Yeah, I had a great chat with him on the first episode of Late Night Linux Extra, which is a new show that I've started, latenightlinux.com, get the plug in. And it is something that I could see a lot of people really using. He talked about people using different versions of Node, for example, and if you upgrade to a new version of Fedora, you don't necessarily want to upgrade the version of the software that you run in. And having that modularity does mean that it is less painful to have such a short support window. Right. And the idea there is you could just install a version of Node.js and then the OS can float. Now you combine that with containers and virtualization and upgrades start to become less and less relevant. They're more of an implementation detail than they are the core of what's running all of your applications. I've now gone through several releases and I'm still running the same exact Nextcloud setup and everything's working great. And the base OS has made considerable changes in the meantime. And it's really just completely unaware. Nextcloud is just completely unaware of any of it happening. And so really in summary, I'm so impressed with Fedora on the server now that I'm going to consolidate several of my different VPSs into one running on Fedora 28 using Cockpit to manage those containers and those VMs. And I'll just keep upgrading the base OS and continue to use Cockpit to manage it, which is a fantastic remote web GUI. It's nothing like the webmen of the past. It It's really one of the best remote administration implementations I've ever seen from not only a functionality standpoint, an integration standpoint, but also from a security design standpoint. And it's something I don't think the project is getting enough credit for. It is something that back in the day, we would have been blowing our minds over. And now we're like, oh yeah, whatever. It's just something Fedora has. No, you should really go look at Cockpit. It's pretty great. Now, all of that said, I'm still not putting on my workstation. In fact, there was sort of a thrill I had. I had my Kubuntu workstation in front of me with a bunch of SSH windows into Fedora boxes this weekend. That was my weekend. And I'm not switching out my main workstation because when it comes to GUI applications and desktop environments, they are less forgiving about some of these upgrades. It's less transactional. There's more esoteric configurations and extensions or applets. And I just still don't trust a eight or nine or 10 month window for my distribution and my desktop environment. I want that to be static and stable so I can get my work done. But my server, where things are containerized and isolated and virtualized, eh, that's a different story these days. It's sort of flipped for me. And it is a very stock experience, isn't it? Similarly with the spins, I tried out the XFCE spin and it looks very much like stock XFCE. It's not quite 100% stock, but it's much closer than something like Zubuntu that I'm used to. And I don't know, you, you can see a distro like Ubuntu taking GNOME and adding some real value there. Whereas Fedora, I suppose the value is that it is more or less just upstream GNOME. Yeah, and I think you can make a pretty good argument for both, uh, especially from an end user standpoint. But I like it. I, I kind of appreciate that they do that. And I think they have a really good implementation of GNOME 328. It's a solid release. And I've talked about this extensively in Linux Unplugged, but they have done some real pioneering work to make Thunderbolt 3 better than it is on any other desktop platform. And that is one of the most impressive things you have to give Fedora 28. And you're starting to see that materialize in other GNOME-based distributions, but they pioneered the work on Bolt and 
I, as a user of Thunderbolt, really appreciate their work in that particular area. So it's a great desktop. It's a solid release. I'm just not really looking forward to upgrading it all the time. And there's promises of modularity. There's promises of atomic workstation. But they're just not there yet for a workstation use. And that's kind of what I keep coming back to with Fedora. It's getting better in all of these areas. But for workstation, professional use, I don't know if it's there yet. I bet a lot of people in the audience are using it right now and think I'm just crazy. But it's just my personal opinion. When you have to upgrade every, you know, nine or so months, it's not a great situation. I would almost prefer to see something like Fedora rolling. And I know Rawhide's a thing, but I would like to see an official Fedora rolling where I could maybe pin certain things, like maybe a whole meta package group like Plasma or my web browser, I could pin to specific versions and get backports from Red Hat Enterprise Linux, and I could have other parts that are rolling and moving. I know it sounds crazy, but I think if any project could pull that off, right now, it's Fedora. Well, you're talking to someone sitting in front of Zubuntu 16.04 still. I haven't upgraded my main workstation, and I'm not going to for a while. 16.04 is fine, um, and I'll upgrade it to 18.04 in good time, and then probably stick on that for another couple of years. Yeah. So this model is very much not for me, but I can see the appeal of it. If you are a developer, if you want the later stuff all the time, but you don't want to have the real bleeding edge like Arch, it seems to be sitting somewhere in the middle of that. I disagree because I think you could flip it around. You don't have to just subscribe to the latest stuff. See, I think if they pull this off right, you could sit on a Fedora workstation and say, I want this specific version of XFCE. I want this specific version of Audacity, this specific version of FFmpeg. Uh, but you can let LS and all the GNU tools roll. I, I don't care about the GNU tools. Keep my grep fresh. But, you know, I definitely want to make sure I only have this version of XFCE for as long as it's supported in RHEL. But I could have the Fedora version of LS. And I think that would actually work for you pretty well. Well, that feels a bit speculative. And you mentioned the Atomic Workstation. Um, they've changed the name to Silverblue. At least that's the code name for now. I think that it's nowhere near being ready at this point for daily use, certainly for most people. But it is good to see them innovating and thinking long term and not just being stale. They, they need to do stuff like this, don't they? Yeah, and one of the really interesting things about Atomic is it's created in an era of big infrastructure. So you can like one-click deploy it to Amazon. Um, it is available as a droplet, one-click droplet on DigitalOcean, the latest version, Fedora 28. When you go to quote-unquote download Fedora Atomic, there are options on the Fedora Atomic project page to just spin it up on a VM, or or you can download the ISO. It really is a distribution that's created to run like in a VM or in virtualization. I gave it a go, and it's so cool. I was doing things like Atomic Run, and then I would say like the name of a container, and, and maybe that, in this case, the container was Cockpit. So I would say Atomic Run Cockpit, uh, and it would go out and pull down all of the individual dependencies and as containers and build all of this Docker stuff up and run it all in containers and spin it up for me. But at the same time, it was outputting like the file system changes. So while there was a lot of container magic happening, I was very connected to the actual work that was being done on my file system. And I, I don't know how to really quantify that other than just saying that's the kind of output and an interface that really gives me confidence in a system. The magic scripts work, and I also get output on everything they just did. And I really had the sense that if I was building out a Red Hat shop right now, 
And I knew we were going to use a lot of CentOS and Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Fedora Atomic would absolutely be a contender in this space. It's a, it's a neat idea. The, the core idea here is the base OS can be updated in transactional updates. Something goes wrong, you just move back. All of the applications, even some of your administrative tools, are in containers. And they sort of float independently of your base operating system. So you can do flip upgrades, bring a, bring a system completely up to date, and not even touch your containers. They still stay connected. They're still talking to their storage. And the idea here is your release windows kind of go away. And you just keep the transactional updates going over time. And the system just runs until the hardware dies. Yeah, it is a huge release. And there's a lot of moving parts with Fedora these days. Yeah, I'm going to plug again for you. Go check out Late Night Linux Extra because uh, Joe had Matthew Miller on there to kind of explain all of it in their own language, and it clicks. It really clicks when he talks about it. Also, bonus mention, uh, Daniel Foray is on there to talk about the next version of Elementary OS as well. So go check that out. And also, while we're plugging, go get every single episode of Linux Action News, linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get the new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And please consider supporting the whole network at patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We've recently posted some studio tours and an exclusive Alan Jude-hosted episode of TechSnap. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris Elias. I'm at Joe Rissington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.